Well, we are thrilled you're here this morning. Uh, I wanted to kick things off with a little bit of a family chat. I have a few announcements the, before the sermon. Um, just three big things that we should cover real quickly. First of all, uh, we have uh, Mike Kiowski with us today. Mike, stand on up. One of our elders, Mike Kiowski, is here. <laughs> Terry, stand up too. Terry, you could. There you go. All right. We love you guys. Hey, Mike and Terry are in training at the Elgin Training Center. They're planning to leave everything behind here and go to Romania to strengthen churches next year. They're still in the training process, and they will be put in the catapult and fired over the ocean, uh, Lord willing, January or February. So they're going to be in the gym after the service. Find them, encourage them, and get the latest report. Thanks for being here, guys. All right. Second. We had an election earlier this week. We spent two weeks talking about God and government, learning to discuss God and government with grace and truth. How many of you think the whole world should have been at our church the last two weeks getting ready for this moment? Do you wish they would have? Yeah. Let me just encourage us as a church family. Titus 3.1 says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Hey, let's strive for that together. Things are getting nasty out there. Let's be a light in the darkness, regardless of how we voted. Um, In addition, let's strive for accuracy. If you ever have an opportunity, if somebody says something inaccurate about the Bible or God's word, you know, work gently to clear that up. Um, I need to offer an apology, too, during the sermon last week. I mentioned that um, something Max Licato had been quoted as endorsing um, Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump. Somebody contacted me this week and said, hey, that's not exactly accurate. So I went back and checked the article, and sure enough, the article had listed him as being um, on Hillary's side, but he never endorsed a candidate. He was very against Trump, but he had never said anything in favor um, of one or the other. So I'm clearing that up as my way of saying, hey, I want to get it right. So please accept, accept my apology on that. I should have done more, uh, better to be clear about that. But as we strive for clarity, just understand, we really have responsibility and authority for one vote, our vote. We don't have any authority to police anyone else's vote. Maybe your candidate won, maybe your candidate lost. Uh, I just think the verses that I read should really guide and govern our hearts and our tongues and our spirits in the church and in the world going forward. It's a challenge I'm giving to myself, uh, and that's a challenge that I'm giving to our church. So thank you for receiving that. Uh, Finally, Leader Development Saturday coming up is a big deal. We mentioned in announcements, but if you are a leader or if you would like to be a leader, Uncommon Leadership 201, we have a soul care track if you want to learn how to take care of people. I will be teaching a track on studying and teaching God's Word. If you teach in this church, you should plan on being there. And Lauren and I will be leading a track on balancing working for Christ in the church and managing your household well. It's going to be great. It's for everyone. You're invited. It's next Saturday. All right. Well, here we go. The topic for the morning is sanctity of life. I was originally planning on covering um, LGBT issues starting this morning, but I swapped them. It made more sense to start talking about sanctity of life. Um, if you're a visitor here, we, we're not just trying to be super controversial by talking about all these, these topics. We are humbly saying that we have to find our voice as a church, and we would like to learn to discuss these hot topics with grace and with truth. In other words, we're saying we want to do a better job than we're doing. So we've already covered uh, how do we discuss Islam and terrorism with grace and truth. Those sermons are online. 
Then we talked about God and government getting ready for this week, and I'm glad we did. Now we're moving on to spend two weeks on the sanctity of life. What do we believe about life? What do we believe about choice? What do we believe about abortion? Uh, This is the first part, so we'll be focusing entirely on life today, the value of life, what the Bible says about life. Then next week we'll get into the debate and the controversy and what are the other views out there. Uh, As we learn to talk about life, uh, I have to reflect on the fact that Lauren and I have three awesome children. Um, Our plan when we got married was to get married and to work and uh, save for five years, then to buy our house, to travel to Europe, and then to start building our family. Uh, God had other plans. Sometimes when you make plans, do you think God actually laughs at them? Because we had our plan, and then 11 months into our marriage, uh, I was sitting on the couch watching TV, and I heard Lauren call from another room, Ryan! And I went in there, what, what, what? She was holding a pregnancy test. She said, we're pregnant! I said, what? This isn't our plan! (laughs) So I did what any husband would do at that moment. I got the video camera. And I documented everything. I'm like, we're having a baby. (laughs) And so there was a mixture of fear and panic and joy and excitement. And it was all mixed together. Um, And our lovely daughter Ellie came along nine months later. And then we had Cassie and then we had Jared. Um, How exciting that was. But the planning and the preparation began for Ellie, our first child, You know, those early days when you're pregnant with your first child, you're arguing over baby names and what color the nursery is going to be painted and who's going to assemble the crib. You know, all those early battles that you got to get nailed down. And then, of course, we were watching uh, all the television shows and reading all the books, the baby story on TLC, and then we were reading what to expect when you're expecting and getting all the information. Uh, And then we started going to the doctor for checkups. I don't know about this whole ultrasound thing. You know, back in my day, we didn't have 3D ultrasounds, all right? We had to look at this black and white picture of an alien and try and figure out if that's really a child that we want to welcome into this world. I mean, that, it's like, I think the nurses were making everything up when they were like, found a leg. Like, you didn't find a leg? You found a horn. <laughs> have you seen those black and white ultrasounds? And um, I'll never forget, as we were at the doctor, going through all the routines and preparing for the child, when the doctor said... Would you guys like to do some routine tests? And we said, well, what, what would they cover? And he listed the things they would cover. And um, there was a little risk involved with the test. And I said, well, why would we do that one? And he said, well, we would screen for things like birth defects or things like that. I said, well, why would we do that? He said, so you can decide if you want to terminate the pregnancy. That moment was different. That moment where a professional in a clinical and very cold, very matter-of-fact and very routine way would suggest that stopped my heart for a second. Like, did he just say what I think he said? The discussion about what we believe about life and choice and policy and health is one thing. That moment was different. Real lives were involved. Real people were doing the talking. It was not a concept far out there. It was not anything removed. It was right there in that room. And I know now what was at stake. I know that now. Thankfully, we had made up our mind long before that 
And I looked at him straight in the eye and I said, we would never do that, ever. And that was it. He checked the box and off we went. I'll never forget that moment. The topic of life had a dark shadow cast over it for me in my own heart. Hey, do you have a strong biblical conviction about the value of life? Are you ready to discuss this topic and make decisions in the doctor's office, in the classroom, in the break room, wherever? Uh, We're looking into the Bible today to see the value of life. And if we have an accurate biblical understanding of the value of life, I think we will have a strong foundation on which to stand, from which we can answer a thousand questions. Let's pray, and then we'll look into God's Word together. Father in heaven, thank you that you have filled your word with vital information so that we can understand all of the topics that are being thrown around today. This is a topic that divides our country. This is a topic that divides families. And we pray that you would give us biblical clarity on your heart so that we can represent you well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There'll be several verses we go to today. You won't have to chase all around the Bible, but you can turn to Genesis chapter 1 for the first few. We will project the verses on the screen. Uh, This is a topical message, which is different and unusual, so uh, just know that. And here we are in Genesis chapter 1. What does the Bible say about life, the origin of life, the value of life? Well, as you're turning there, you can jot down the first point, which is this. God designed and built all forms of life. Where did life come from? Understanding that life is divine, it's from the hand of God, sets us uh, on the correct starting point. God designed and built all forms of life. Knowing that gives us an accurate starting point. In Genesis 1 verse 20, God is creating the entire world. It says in Genesis 1:20, God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning the fifth day. God goes on to say, let the earth bring forth living creatures, livestock and creatures of the ground. God is the one who created life. We are told in this secular day and age in science classes, uh, columnists and uh, some politicians and some education specialists, we're told that life came about from an accident. It was chaos and chance that somehow led to life. But science has shown time again that it is statistically impossible for unguided dust to produce life. It is statistically impossible. It's an unscientific, biased theory to think that time plus matter plus chance can equal life. It truly is miraculous, and a divine hand had to give life to uh, non-living material. Life is complex, and its complexity points to a creator, a mind, one who has unimaginable power and even love to bend every variable in the cosmos to be able to sustain life. God designed physical life to display his creativity, his power, his goodness, and his sheer immensity. Therefore, all life is his. It belongs to him. He did it. He owns it. It's his. Because of this, you are his. You are not yours. 
you are his. Your life does not belong to you. It was handed to you by a great divine being who thought you up and decided to give you life. You didn't give yourself life. Your parents didn't give yourself life. God gave you life. Your life is in his hands. He can do with it however he pleases because it's his, not yours. Children very quickly try and figure out what in this world is theirs. One of their favorite words early on is mine. I read the uh, list of, it's called the law of the toddler. Number one, if I like it, it's mine. Number two, if it's in my hand, it's mine. Number three, if I can take it from you, it's mine. Number four, if I had it a little while ago, it's mine. Number five, if it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. Number six, if I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. Number seven, if it looks like mine, it's mine. Number eight, if I saw it first, it's mine. Number nine, if you're playing with something and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. And number ten, if it's broken, it's yours. The word mine, the desire to possess, to control, to hold, to own, comes very early in our lives. But your life belongs to God. It's not yours. Never was. Always been his. God designed and built all forms of life. That's the origin of the discussion. Number two, God created humans in his image. You can write that down. God created humans in his image. He made something special, something different and distinct from all of his other living creatures. It says in Genesis 1, 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them goes on to say, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over it all. God made humans special, one of a kind, in his likeness. Therefore, we can know God personally because we have made like, we've been made like him. We can know him in a unique way like animals and plants cannot. We are one of a kind compared to all of them. We see here also, which will set the stage for our discussion of LGBT issues in a few weeks, we see that God also designed male and female from the beginning. He made the first two people different and distinct, and yet he made Eve out of Adam. We don't think this is a myth. We think this is a truth, a reality. And therefore, you can see the beauty. He didn't just make two beings from two piles of dust. He made a man, and then he made a woman drawn out of that man. They were therefore from the same substance. They were unified in their origination. That mirrors God, who is three in one. He is Father, He is Son, He is Spirit. He is three, but He is one. God made Adam and He made Eve two, but they are one. And then when they had a child, they were three, but that child uh, took on the essence and the likeness of the parents. God made us in His image. That, on the individual level, means that we have mind, we have emotion. We have will. But in the communal nature, that means that we can be bound up in love. We can be united to other people. The beautiful covenant of marriage found in Genesis uh, is Adam and Eve. God was giving away the first bride to the first groom. And there they were. Not only were they one from the same flesh, but God then 
made them one emotionally and spiritually, bound up in a covenant of love. And that mirrors the very nature of God, who is love. They're also made in God's image and likeness so that those two could create life. He gave them the ability to create life. Not just any old life, like a virus, but a life that also mirrors the image and likeness of God. A special life, a one-of-a-kind being who can know God and walk with God. He gave humans the ability to create life. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. I have a picture here of my wedding. Lauren and I got married back in the year 2000. There we are. I won the lottery. She's beautiful. There's my mom and my dad. They love that I'm putting that picture up there right now. (laughs) But on that day, what happened? The Bible says what happened is two became one. My wife and I made a promise and a covenant before God. Wrapped up in that covenant, God did something. He united us spiritually so that we are now bound up together as one. And our children, uh, at the genetic level, and even emotionally, take on the love and the likeness of the parents. God created humans in his image and likeness. We were made to know him. We were made to be like him. What does that mean? You can jot this down. That means that it's God who gives us value. Where does the value of life come from? God made us in his image. We can therefore trace our life to the hand of the giver of life. Our life can mean something. God gives our lives purpose and value because we were made to know the one who knows everything. Your life can be significant if only because you know the one who gave it to you. That's where the sense of purpose and value and the meaning of life comes from. But because you are his, you have eternal value intrinsically because you belong to him. Because you're his, your value doesn't come from anything you can do or can't do, anything you are or aren't, anywhere you've been or haven't been. Any stage of development does not change the amount of value you have. Your value comes entirely from the reality that you are his. And he's eternal, and you're now eternal. Therefore, your value is eternal. We uh, watched the three movies, The Hobbit, recently as a family. How many of you have seen the movies, The Hobbit? I'm not talking about The Lord of the Rings. I mean, actually, The Hobbit trilogy. If you haven't seen them, shame on you. All right? Get with your Tolkien. Uh, The Hobbit is an awesome movie. And at one point, uh, what we see in the movie is Bilbo Baggins finds uh, on a humongous pile of heaping treasure guarded by a dragon, he finds this one shining stone called the Arkenstone. And he was told before by the dwarves who were accompanying him that that is the mission. Uh, And the king of the dwarves, Thorin Oakenshield, wants that above everything. He would trade that for everything uh, that's under the dragon. In fact, he would trade the entire mountain for that one Arkenstone. So, what does Bilbo do? He steals it. Why? Because there was about to be a war between the elves and the dwarves, and he runs out, and he gives it to the elf and says... Thorin would trade the entire mountain for this. This is your leverage. This can stop the war. What value, what precious value that stone held. Why? Because it belonged to the king. That's why. It belonged to the king. What gives you value? More value than a mountain of treasure. You belong to the king. You're his. That's where you get your value from. But it's not just about you. What makes anybody worth anything? 
What makes anyone on your street worth protecting, worth respecting, worth loving? Too often, people try and decide the value and the worth of others based on that person's alignment to themselves. The closer the person is to my image, the more I will love them and value them. That's a tragedy. Where does life get its value? All life. All life gets its value because it belongs to God. Your life belongs to God, so does theirs. You resemble Him, so do they. In spirit, in mind, in heart, in will. Therefore, everyone should be treated as precious, regardless of their race. Everyone should be treated as precious, regardless of their gender, regardless of anything they have done in this life. In Isaiah 64, 8, it says this, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. We are all the work of your hand. Made by God, made by God. Designed, built, filled by God, you too. What gives value to the life of the criminal? Why should they be given any respect? They were made in the image of God. What about the poor beggar who has nothing to contribute to society and is a burden made in the image of God? Why should we be careful as we look after the mentally ill? Why should we pay special attention to children with severe disabilities? Because they were made in the image of God. Their value entirely comes from the reality that they belong to God and they were designed and built by Him. When society starts deciding our value, chalking and adding it up based on what we can give or what we need, we're in trouble. All human life is sacred at all stages. Regardless of contribution, it's sacred. Because God gave it value. Write this down. God also gives us identity. God gives us value. God gives us identity. You're more than your genes. We know that. When you look at twins, they're genetically identical, but they're different. They're not the same person. You have a different personality than all those people in your family. You know that. It's because you're not just a body, you're a soul. God didn't just form you physically, He formed you spiritually. You have a unique soul. He made you Uh, out of something that will never die. Your life will go on past this world. That's more than the matter can account for. God formed and fashioned and breathed a soul into your body. It's completely amazing to think about it. We don't know what a soul is. We don't know what brand of glue God discovered to, to fuse a soul to stay in the body so that when you sneeze, it doesn't accidentally, you know, sneeze out. Somehow your soul stays put. But your soul is not your body. Your body is not your soul. God made the immaterial part of you as well. It's amazing. And he gave a soul to everyone who's around you. He gave them an identity. Um, And everyone's different. We talk about this all the time on our staff. Our staff is very different. We always talk about personality tests and types to figure out how we can know each other better and respect each other more. Pastor Mark, more emotional than Pastor Jeremy. Who would have thought? Pastor Jeremy's more of a thinker. Mark is more of a feeler. Pastor Dave is more of an extrovert, always floating among people. Sharon, our administrative assistant, is more of an introvert. She would hate to get up on this stage right now. Different! You're different. You're actually one of a kind. 
hand-carved by a creative God. He gave you your identity. God gives value, God gives identity. Because he does that, we're all created in his image and we have value and purpose. So, first, God designed and built all forms of life. Second, God created humans in his image, giving them value and identity. Third, write this down. Human life begins at conception. Human life begins at conception. How do we find that out? Does the Bible say anything about when human life begins? It's a political debate. Uh, If you try and pin anybody down, the scientist, the president, you know, they'll say, well, it's above my pay grade. We can't know. Um, But I think that's misleading. I think the science is actually pretty clear. And um, when you spend time thinking about it and reasoning through it, uh, it is awfully one-sided to decide when life begins. The Bible is also black and white, crystal clear. It's not a gray area at all. In Psalm 139, 13 to 14, it says this, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. David, in this verse, gives God the credit for what's going on in the womb. God is the one who is doing the magical work of life. Well, wait a minute. It's just chemicals and enzymes. And you... No, it's more than that. God is superseding over the process of life. The fact that the process of chemicals and enzymes and biochemical, the fact that all that is happening is proof that there's a divine hand upon our world because it couldn't have happened on its own. But beyond the physical, God is forming a person with a soul to be a being who he knows. God formed you in your mother's womb. He did it. Human life begins at conception. We know scientifically now, like no generation before, how life actually begins, how God does genetically weave father and mother together as threads of DNA in the first living single cell. The fact that we see the DNA unraveling and coming back together is literally like knitting threads of information together. And we see God's providential hand in all of it that transcends the natural. I found a really nerdy video from a health class that shows what happens in the fertilized cell. And I'm going to make you watch it. Check it out. Inside the egg, the tightly packed male genetic material spreads out. A new membrane forms around the genetic material, creating the male pronucleus. Inside, the genetic material reforms into 23 chromosomes. The female genetic material, awakened by the fusion of the sperm with the egg, finishes dividing, resulting in the female pronucleus, which also contains 23 chromosomes. As the male and female pronuclei form, spiderweb-like threads, called microtubules, pull them toward each other. The two sets of chromosomes join together, completing the process of fertilization. At this moment, a unique genetic code arises, instantly determining gender, hair color, eye color, and hundreds of other characteristics. This new single cell, the zygote, is the beginning of a new human being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Um, What we believe about that single cell is we believe that from the moment that single cell has been fertilized, you have human life in its earliest stage of development. Next week, we'll talk about the debate 
How can you sustain that? Is that true? How can that be the same as a full-grown human man, a single cell? But here's what I'll say. Everything necessary to form a complete human being is found inside of that cell from the moment it's fertilized. The only thing the mother provides is nutrition. That's it. All of the material for that cell to build itself is inside of it, not outside of it. Therefore, it's not just a cell that's going to lead one day to a human life. It is human life in its earliest stage of development. It is human, it is distinct from the mother, and it is alive. Write this down. God knit you together in the womb. The science is black and white. When an egg is fertilized, 23 chromosomes from each parent combine to form a genetically distinct living cell. It's the size of a poppy seed. Here's a picture of a poppy seed. You were that big. That was you. Next time you get all up on your high horse and think you're really something, just look, go to Portillo's and order a hot dog and look at a poppy seed and say, that was me. That was me. That's how I started. I'm really small and needy. God had to really make sure that I got into this world. Look at that. That is the beginning of you. God knit you together in the womb. It isn't a body part of the mother. How do we know that? Well, that poppy seed contains three billion letters of information along the double helixes of DNA. Three billion letters. Chemical letters, A, G, C, T. Three billion letters. It's an entire library. It's called the human genome. It tells a unique story. It creates a new person. It's a life that defines and forms itself inside a separate, distinct person. Every one of the mother's 10 trillion cells is genetically different from that one cell. Did you hear that? Every one of the mother's 10 trillion cells that make her up are different than the genetic information found in that one cell. It is distinct. It's not her. It's new. It's different. It's special. We know that genetically. We know that biologically. The child is unique from the moment the first cell is created. So genetically, a distinct living human life exists immediately. Physically, this person develops rapidly, though. Within three, heart, within three weeks, the heart begins to beat. Isn't that adorable? Three weeks. The mother may have only figured out she was pregnant. She might not even know yet. But the heart is already beating. The child has its own blood type. Six weeks, the child is an inch long and has fingers. Brain waves start to function. These are what we would call vital signs when we look to see if anybody is alive today. If you pull somebody out of a frozen lake, check to see, are they alive? Are they alive? You look for vital signs. You find those vital signs very quickly in the womb. Nine weeks, fingerprints. Twelve weeks, all, by 12 weeks, all organs are developed. The baby is also able to cry and feel pain by 12 weeks. This is a child. This is a living human being from very early on, from the moment there is a cell. It's a distinct human life. God knit you together in the womb. And the Bible confirms this. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Write this down. God also knew you before you were born. Talk about this more next week, but clearly within the first, you know, month, how can you say that resembles, it doesn't even resemble you? How can you say that's a human? Well, what is God's relationship like to this new human life? Fascinating. God knew you before you were born. God saw you before the world met you. And he didn't just see your cells and bones, your fingers and toes. He saw you. He knew 
everything about you before you were born. If anyone were to ask him what will happen in Joe's life when he is 62 years old, three months in, five days, two hours, he can tell you about that part of your life. He knows all of you before you even come into this world. Jeremiah 1.5 says this, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. The person in the womb is known by God comprehensively and personally. He formed not only your physical frame, but your inner world, your rational circuitry, your emotional color palette, your food quirks. You got them. Your food weird. I know it. We all are. Your birthmarks. He knew it all. He knew everything about you before you were even you. That's the wonder of the wisdom of God. That's his relationship to you. He also knows your destiny before you take your first step. He has work for you to accomplish. He has a plan and a purpose for your life. It's all thought about before you were even here. There's amazing stories in the Old Testament. One of them is the King Josiah, where a prophet confronts a king and, and says, a king named Josiah will be born. And he and starts listing what this king will do hundreds of years before this king is even born or named. And there is a prophecy about what this king will do. What does that mean? That means you go back to like when the United States was being founded and God could have the ability to say, there's, there's going to be this person named Ryan Hall. And let me tell you about him. Uh, he's going to be, uh, you know, Long hair, drummer in a heavy metal band. I know you don't know what heavy metal is, but uh, and and then God, then I'm gonna get his heart. I'm gonna turn him around. He's gonna be a pastor of a church. God could have done that. He can right now sit you down and tell you about the name and the birth weight of your great 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 granddaughter and what her wedding dress is gonna look like. He knows everything. God's wisdom and knowledge and love for the unborn should form our convictions. If God has been planning for this life to come into the world and knows the destiny of this child, how then shall we see that person through his eyes? Write this down. God allowed and intended for your life to be unique. He knit you together. He knew you before you were born. He allowed and intended your life to be unique. What does that mean? That means that the effects of sin were woven into your existence, physically, mentally, sexually. There is evidence that something broke away from God's intended order a long time ago. You are born with evidence, internal evidence, that humanity broke away from God's intended order a long time ago. God allowed it, and in some cases intended it to be so. How do we know that? It says in John 9, 2-3, <clears throat> and his disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, God allowed this person to be born blind, an effect of the fall. Why? Because God had a plan to use that to show that he is powerful and he is present. It says in Exodus 4.11, when the Lord was talking to Moses, then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? 
who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? The effects of sin were woven into your existence. This is proof that you are who God says. You are a fallen creature living in a fallen world and you need liberation. The God who gave you physical life tells you that you need spiritual life. Beyond the life that you got at birth. Beyond the life that a hot dog can give you for another day. You need new life. Because the life you have been given has been given into a fallen world and you are a fallen creature. The Bible says we need new life. The Bible says we need to be born again. Spiritually. The Bible says we need to become a new creation of God. You couldn't give yourself physical life. You can't give yourself spiritual life. The idea that spiritual life and salvation is like another birth means that you are powerless to do it yourself. Do you remember the story when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus? Remember that story? And what did Jesus say to him? Jesus says that you need to be what? Born again. And Nicodemus was like, how can, how can, I, how can I be born again? As if he's going to like call mom on the phone. Yeah, mom, just talk to the Messiah. We got to do it again. Yeah, I don't know. I'm coming over. Get ready. (laughs) Click. Born again. It's a staggering thought. What does it mean to be born again? It means you first have to admit that you don't have spiritual life yet. Second, you have to admit only God can give it to you. Only God can give it to you. God allowed and intended your life to be unique. The reason for all of the pain and the suffering, for all of the deficiencies in your life, really, the reason is just, it's very simple. God is saying to you, you need my son. You need my son. He can give you new life. He can give you the life that will never end. The life that I designed you to enjoy. I gave you physical life, and I can give you spiritual life. And God wants you to find that life in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But it can only come through faith in the Messiah who died on the cross and rose again. If you try in any other way to get this life in God's presence, you will fail because you can't give it to yourself. He has to give it to you just like he gave you physical life. The fourth point is this. You can write this down. God expects us to treasure and train our children. God designed and built all forms of life. He created humans in his image. Human life begins at conception and God expects us to treasure and train our children. We are to welcome them joyfully into the world and we are to raise them in godliness so that they might know the life that is truly life, spiritual life. I love what the Bible says. Um, the angels were actually talking to the parents of John the Baptist in Luke 1.15 and here's what it says. For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Wow. John the Baptist had the extraordinary privilege of being filled with the Spirit of God from his mother's womb. From the very beginning of his life, God consecrated him and set him apart. How does the God of immensity, the God of eternity, fit in a womb? Well, we know that not only did God in the Spirit come upon John the Baptist in the womb, but Jesus himself in Mary, God inhabited the womb of a woman 
Jesus came into this life through the womb. He could have just showed up and said, life begins when I start walking and here I am. Instead, he started from the very beginning, like each one of us, in the womb. And he was born Christmas morning. Why? Because he came down to rescue us. God uses us to give our children physical life. Only Jesus can give them spiritual life. They must be born again. We must be born again. Hey, listen, God knows you. All of your days on to eternity. He loves you. He gave you life so that you can know him. He wants to give you new life so that you can know him forever. Do you have that life? Have you come to Jesus Christ who was born of a woman, born into this world, who lived the perfect life and died on the cross and rose again in triumph and he lives even now? Have you come to that person and asked him for life that will never end? Or are you still trying to give yourself spiritual life? Are you still trying to work for it? Or do you think that God will give it to you just because? Have you listened to the call and the cry of the scripture which says, unless you are born again, you can't see the kingdom of God? You must be born again. God loves you and he wants to bring you into his family. He'll only do it by faith so that you can be his child forever. He gave you life for a reason. And he offers you life through his son for that same reason, so that you can know him forever. You know, when the Bible talks about us entering God's family, it's very clear. No one is automatically in God's family. You are not a child of God until you are either, the Bible uses two ways to describe it, until you are either born again a second time, then you're one of God's children, or the Bible uses the the beautiful illustration of adoption. God adopts us as children into his family. As we're talking about taking care of children and adoption today, this morning, let me just say this. Have you ever been adopted by faith into the family of God? Is there a time in your life you can point to where you believe the truth that I am sinful and I don't belong in God's family and I will go to hell forever because of my sins? But God sent his son into the world to save me from my sins. Therefore, I will go to him and I will ask for new life, life that never ends. I want to give you that chance right now and right here to ask God to adopt you into his family. If you've been wondering all of your life, where's God? Where's God? How come he's not there for this? How come he wasn't there for... He's trying to show you he's not there. He's not there. He's not there. But he wants to be. The only way that happens, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I want to give you the chance right now to put your faith in the Son of God who came into the world that you might live. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came into the world to give us eternal life, life that never ends, life in your presence, in your glorious presence forever. But I know there are some here this morning who don't have that life. They have physical life, but they don't know you. They feel far away from you. They've never understood you. Lord, I just right now ask and believe that you are at work in hearts and souls right now. And I just invite anybody in this room who knows that you have something better for them, who knows that you have something special for them, I just invite them right now to humble themselves and ask that you might give them eternal life, that they might be born again 
Father, I give them an opportunity to pray this in their own heart by faith, saying, Oh God, forgive a sinner like me. I've ruined the life you've given me. I've lived apart from you. I have invited your judgment. I don't deserve your love. But I believe you've given it through your Son, Jesus Christ. And here and now, I ask for forgiveness. Here and now, I invite Jesus to give me life. Life forever. Life that will never end. Wash away all of my sin. Promise me that I will be with you in glory forever and ever. Lord, I just pray for anyone who is inviting you to give them new birth, that they would know you will never leave them. You will never forsake them. They are yours and you are theirs permanently. Thank you for this hope and this joy. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.